0: Then the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him with a question. Teacher, they said, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies and leaves a wife but no children, the man must marry the widow and have children for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first one married and died without leaving any children. The second one married the widow but he also died, leaving no child. It was the same with the third. In fact, none of the seven left any children. Last of all, the woman died too. At the resurrection, whose wife will she be, since the seven were married to her? Jesus replied, Are you not in error, because you do not know the scriptures or the power of God? When the dead rise, they will neither marry nor be given in marriage. They will be like the angels in heaven. Now, about the dead rising, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the account of the bush, how God said to him, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but of the living. You are badly mistaken. One of the teachers of the law came and heard them debating. Noticing that Jesus had given them a good answer, he asked him, Of all the commandments, which is the most important? The most important one, answered Jesus, is this Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind, and with all your strength. The second is this, love your neighbor as yourself. There is no commandment greater than these. Well said, teacher, the man replied. You are right in saying that God is one, and there is no other but him. To love him with all your heart, with all your understanding, with all your strength, and to love your neighbor as yourself is more important than all burnt offerings and sacrifices. When Jesus saw that he had answered wisely, he said to him, You are not far from the kingdom of God. And from then on, no one dared ask him any more questions. While Jesus was teaching in the temple courts, he asked, How is it that the teachers of the law say that the Christ is the son of David? David himself, speaking by the Holy Spirit, declared, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. David calls him Lord. How then can he be his son? The large crowd listened to him with delight. As he taught, Jesus said, Watch out for the teachers of the law. They like to walk around in flowing robes and be greeted in the marketplaces and have the most important seats in the synagogues and the places of honour at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for a show make lengthy prayers. Such men will be punished most severely. Jesus sat down opposite the place where the offerings were put and watched the crowd putting their money into the temple treasury. Many rich people threw in large amounts, but a poor widow came and put in two very small copper coins worth only a fraction of a penny. Calling his disciples to him, Jesus said, I tell you the truth. This poor widow has put more into the treasury than all the others. They all gave out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in everything, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Julie. Well, friends, I wonder if you ever find yourself daydreaming. And if you find yourself daydreaming, do you find yourself daydreaming of your version of a self that doesn't need to daydream? Because you're just so so gripped by something. You've got such a clear sense of purpose. You're living, living a life that you are totally fired up for, a deep sense of commitment and conviction. I wonder if you find yourself daydreaming of a version of yourself that So captivated by something that it kind of breaks through the the mundane realities of life and it gives a drive and and an energy to everything. It's the kind of life that we see people living in movies, right? Movies have a great way of kind of captivating or sort of capturing that sense of drive and energy and purpose. As I was thinking about this, all sorts came to mind, but for some reason, it was this classic from, from years ago that popped into my mind, probably because when I remember watching it, I remember being just sort of you know, somehow viscerally gripped by the sense of conviction and commitment and, and and drive that these guys had. It's a classic, The Pelican Brief. Julia Roberts and Denzel Washington looking very young there because it's way back in 1993. And yet somehow this movie came to mind when I was thinking about this because uh, you don't need the whole plotline. It's a pretty good movie. It's not that good a movie that you know. Here we are, 30 years later, talking about it, but. It's an okay movie. John Grisham crime thriller. They've uncovered a conspiracy theory. They've got to get to the bottom of it before someone silences them with a bullet. Even just watching the preview of it kind of got me going. It reminded me, yeah, imagine being that driven, that kind of captivated by things. You know, you've got scenes in abandoned mansions with papers all over the the furniture and everything because nothing else matters. I think, yeah, we might not want a life that looks like that all of the time, because then that's not just sort of a crime thriller, that's a horror movie if you have to live with that kind of level of adrenaline and tension and threat all of the time. But I reckon we go through life hungry with a, a longing for a, a deeper conviction that would, that would shape and ground and energise our day-to-day lives. To put it a little bit differently, and with the baptism of Sophie this morning what is the deep conviction the sort of the grounding principle of life that we would long for and pray for that would shape sophie's life what is it that we'll be praying will be the energizing reality for the years to come well here at church we've been making our way through mark's gospel and we're coming towards the pointy end of mark's gospel and even from what we've read today, but particularly if you've been with us the last couple of weeks, it feels like we're reading through a whole series of arguments that Jesus had with religious leaders, which can all start to feel like this is just a bunch of, kind of irrelevant arguments with long-forgotten religious leaders. And yet through it all, as we will see again today, Mark, through Jesus, is helping us to see what it is to have a life that is grounded in and and energised by whole of life, whole of person, love of God. Now there's heaps that we could say about the conversation that Jesus had with the Sadducees, as we opened with. It's a quirky little conversation, but actually with some really deep ideas. But we're going to jump in and pick up the action at verse 28. Um, One reason for mentioning the Sadducees, though, is that By this point, it does seem to feel like we're we're sort of watching a tag team wrestling match. Um, There's this lineup of religious leaders who are just eager to jump into the ring with Jesus and see who can take him down. Uh, Last week, it was the Pharisees. They had an argument that they wanted to have with him, but they get done by Jesus. So it's like they tag out and the Sadducees tag in. They have their argument. Jesus puts them in their place. And now a teacher of the law steps up and kind of tags in to have a go at Jesus. Only when we get to verse 28 and we read the question that he has of Jesus, it seems that actually he's genuinely interested in what Jesus had to say. It's a really respectable, respectful kind of question that you would ask a recognised teacher, a respected rabbi. Of all the commandments, which is the most important? It's this man himself, an expert in the religious system of Judaism. It's a respectful way of him asking Jesus, how would you sum it all up? And then Jesus said something very simple that is actually incredibly profound because he put loving God right alongside loving others. And he did that in a way that no one else had ever done before. You see, first in verse 29, he refers to a really famous summary statement that comes from the words of Moses in the book of Deuteronomy in the Old Testament that lots of Jewish teachers, before Jesus' time even, had highlighted as key summary statement of God's will. Jesus said, Hear o, Lord, sorry, Hear, o Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. But then Jesus followed it up with these words in verse 31. Love your neighbour as yourself. And there's no greater commandment than these, he said. And that was a bit surprising. Because with that second little addition, he wasn't quoting from some well-recognised summary statement, but a really obscure little verse from sort of a, just a paragraph in the middle of Leviticus 19 that nobody paid terribly much attention to. But Jesus plucks it out of obscurity and he brings it right to the centre and puts it alongside loving God with everything you've got. And no one else had ever done that before. If we read this and we might be familiar with this passage, we might have heard this before, it's good for us to actually realise Jesus wasn't just running with the party line. He wasn't just saying what everybody thought. This is Jesus making a powerful statement of what it means to follow him. Jesus is asked, how would you sum it all up? And he says, it's all about love. But not in a vague, general, however you kind of want to feel love. But by putting these two commands side by side and in sequence, Jesus tells us a bunch of really important things. First of all, Jesus says right at the bottom of everything, the very foundation of our life with him, we must love God with everything we've got. It's kind of a whole of life, whole of person, love of God. That's to say that loving God in Jesus' mindset That would be the deep life-shaping, life-energising reality that would drive everything else. But if we pause on that for even just a minute, in our day and age, we think it's kind of—it's a bit weird. It might even seem like kind of nonsense. It just doesn't make sense to command someone to love. Because we tend to think of love as, you know, it's a feeling I have, it's a passion I have, it's a passion that comes upon me. It's not a choice that I make. But Jesus teaches, no, love is the choice to elevate the interests of someone else over your own, to make them the centre of your focus, to pursue their good. It's not to say there's no passion, there's no desire, but it is a passionate desire for their good, not just how they're good for you. And that's what Jesus says we must do, to choose to love God above everything else, at the centre of it all. And then he says we ought to love our neighbour. What is so significant about putting those two things together? Well, for one thing, it says that loving God needs a context to be expressed, right? That loving God is something that involves more than just me and God. It's not just an individual spiritual experience. In technical terms, if you like technical terms, we would say that this guards us against mysticism. The idea that my relationship with God is just an individual private matter between me and him. And Jesus says, no, if you claim to love God, then that must have an impact on all of life and every relationship in it. Love God with everything you've got. And you'll show it in the way that you love the people around you. Your, your family, your housemates, your colleagues, your classmates, even your hairdresser. I mean, it will look a little different depending on the nature of your relationship with them, but you will choose to love them because they're people in your life, because you love God. And it's got a a real-world impact on everything. I know in my own life, as I've been reflecting on this, I think, yeah, this, this impacts everything. So take one practical scenario in life of work. You know... The world has all sorts of ways of thinking about work and why we do it and what it's for and how we put it up with it. But actually, the Bible shows us that work itself, that's an act of stewarding our talents and our opportunities that God has given us. Work is a context in which I express my love of him in the way that I receive the gifts that he's given me. Work is a context to love my neighbour. So I'm not going to work in a job that exploits or oppresses the vulnerable. I want to work in a job that's seeking the good of others. They're the kind of framework questions that we can take to every job. Not just, what am I passionate about? What will satisfy me? But how do I love my neighbour? Actually, at a very practical level for our household, and we've kind of, uh, and the wisdom of others over the years, been forced to think through, how does this even shape the way that we take holidays? Love God with everything you've got and love your neighbour as yourself. So does that mean I have to take them on holidays with me? (laughs) I think actually to love God in my holidays, I I, I need to honour that he is God and that I am not. I am not Superman, I actually need to take a holiday. Taking a holiday is part of how I express my love of God, that he is really God. But I also want to love God in the way I take a holiday, so I don't actually expect that holiday to satisfy me. Not ultimately, not completely. I want to see the beautiful world that God has created, and actually allow that to be turned into a reason to worship him, to thank him. And love your neighbour? Yeah, I need to take holidays as an expression of the way I love my neighbours so that I don't blow my top at them. <laughs> I need a break. I need to re-energise. I need to be re-energised for love and for service. So in a very practical way, my wife Peter and I find ourselves sort of wrestling with this and just saying, actually, this gives us a really helpful framework for thinking something through as simple as taking a holiday. To have a great time, to have a great rest, to really enjoy good time with the people that we love, to eat yummy food, see awesome things, but have a great holiday loving God and others. Because our love for God is not just some private matter between me and him. It's got this real-world expression, love your neighbour as yourself. But I think there's something else that Jesus does by adding in this second command. No one was surprised when he said, love the Lord your God with everything you've got. It would have been a little bit jarring to have love your neighbor as yourself, follow right on behind it. And I think there's something really important for us to see because Jesus teaches us that loving people flows out of and is shaped by loving God. At a very personal level, that challenges the way that we think about our most intimate relationships the people that we tend to put at the centre of our existence, whether it might be the temptation for Matt and Annika to have beautiful Sophie and their beautiful family at the centre of their identity and existence. No, to, to love their children even is the outflow of loving God. At first, Jesus says, love God with all that you've got and then because of that, love people. And there's something really humbling about that because it reminds me that I, I actually need to be taught how to love, what love looks like. You know, people have all kinds of good intentions in the world to, to make it a better place for other people, to seek the good of other people. But Jesus, in such a simple way, reminds us, actually, left to our own devices, I'm not sure I can always work out what will make the world a better place. That's what it means to love God first, to have him at the centre of it all and to allow him to set the agenda of what it looks like to love others. So at a practical level, this impacts on my wife Peter and I as we approach parenting and you think, oh my goodness, the pastor's going to weigh in on parenting. That's either a little bit brave or a little bit crazy. But it's at a very foundational level. It's recognising that there's all sorts of theories and ideas on parenting out there. And we're working it out as we go, painfully aware of our inadequacy. But what I am sure of is that I want my love of God to shape the way that I love my kids. So it's, it's loving our kids to, to help them to understand that I want them, ultimately, to know the love of the Heavenly Father, even as I want them to know my love for them. It's loving my kids to help them to understand that there is an objective right and wrong because God is the objective right, that the consequences matter because God is just, that grace saturates everything because God loves to show his grace because I want God to be at the centre, loving him first and allowing that to shape the way I love anyone and everyone in life. And in this sense, Jesus is saying, love God with all that you've got and then because of that, you'll be able to love people. Now, I began this talk reflecting on that longing in us all to have that deeply grounded conviction that shapes and energizes our life. And this is how Jesus sums up life as his disciple. Really love God. And then really love people. And how did the the, the teacher of the law respond? Verse 32, we read, Oh, well, well said, teacher. He seems to be pretty confident of himself as he passes assessment on how accurate Jesus is. Good job, Jesus. Yes, you got that right. But actually, did you notice that it's Jesus who makes the assessment on this teacher of the law? Verse 34, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Which is actually incredibly bold. Because it implies that this man that Jesus was talking to isn't actually in the kingdom of God. He's not far from it but he's still on the outside looking in. And for everyone standing around, if they'd actually caught what he said and kind of reflected on that, I think that's why they stopped asking questions. (laughs) Because at this point, everyone is thinking, how can this be? This guy is the Bible expert. He's the religious elite. Everyone assumes he's already in. But in Jesus' assessment, he was still on the outside. How can this be? Well, Jesus has just set the benchmark for life in his kingdom, right? Love God with everything you've got. Love others as yourself. And I think it only takes about 16.3 seconds, it will take a little bit, for us to work out that actually I don't measure up to that. I've fallen short of that. So perhaps it feels like Jesus has set an unrealistic goal, right? He's going to have to revise his expectations if he wants anyone on his team. The image that came to mind as I was reflecting on this week is that it's a little bit like giving an eight-year-old a footy, putting them on the 50-meter line and telling them, you're on the team if you can kick it through the goal, which, of course, they can't. Go on, love God with everything you've got and then love your neighbor as yourself. Then you're on the team. But this is Jesus being honest, not cruel. Because we need to remember that Jesus has this whole conversation about such a radical life of love, on his way to the cross. That is the place where Jesus will pour out his love. And it is the confronting reality that none of us are worthy of the kingdom because none of us have lived up to the goal. None of us are worthy, but all of us are invited because Jesus himself lived up to the goal. Love God with everything you've got and your neighbour as yourself. Well, in his death on the cross, Jesus demonstrated his perfect love of God by pouring out his selfless love on us. The Bible teaches us that Jesus died in our place so that we can take our place, that he took our punishment so we receive his blessing, that on the cross, Jesus demonstrates his perfect love of God by pouring out his selfless love on us. So it's not our ability to love like this that gives us a place in God's kingdom but his choice to love like this and then to run with the image of that eight year old holding the footy staring at the goals that seems so far away Jesus then calls us to kick alongside him to come alongside him and aim at the same goal of the life of love that he has lived that he has shown us It's a bit like that kid kicking the footy, but now he gets to do it with his hero. You know, stick the kid on the 50-metre line and tell them to kick the goal, and it it just feels cruel. They've got no hope of making the distance. But to have their hero walk out and join them on the field, I imagine myself as an eight-year-old with Tex Walker from the Crows or Charlie Dixon from the Power, I would be beaming. Who cares that I'm 50 metres out and I haven't got the hope of getting there? I'm kicking next to my heroes. Uh, You know, Tex is bombing them through. Dixon's drilling it and the kid is overjoyed just to be in the moment with their hero. I get to aim at the same goal that they kick every day. And that's actually the life of love and devotion that Jesus invites us into to be, to be energised and empowered, to be enabled to aim at the goal of really loving God with everything we've got, of actually loving our neighbours as ourselves. Because even though we know I'm going to keep missing that goal, so often I'm not going to even get it halfway there, I'm overjoyed by the fact that I get to kick alongside my hero who does it every time. And I think that's why it's really good as we finish to, to sit with the disciples as Jesus points to the poor widow, to make his point. It's the beautiful scene that our passage closed with and, and we'll close with now too. In the midst of wealthy donors piling in the cash, Jesus pointed to this poor widow who dropped in just a few coins. In a worldly sense, her gift was tiny. There's it was, it was almost nothing. But in the economy of God's kingdom, it's not the size of the gift, but the cost to the giver that he values. And Jesus said she put in more than All of the others. Because out of her poverty, she put in everything. All that she had to live on. And as we finish, I want you to pause and to reflect on what that represented. Those those little coins, they were just her final grasp of of comfort. Her final final expression of, of security. It was all handed over in devotion to God. It was a profound expression of leaning into God in devotion to him. Trusting him for security, for his provision, for his care. And as Jesus taught his disciples about life in his kingdom, loving God with everything you've got, he pointed to the humble devotion of a poor widow who lent into God's care and provision. Because that is what it will always mean to love like Jesus teaches us. To really love God and to love others because love is risky. Because it means pursuing the other person's interests above your own, which leaves you vulnerable. And there's no escaping that reality. Choosing to love is choosing to make yourself vulnerable. And friends, we didn't have time to unpack the first paragraph of our reading today. Jesus with the Sadducees, a discussion about resurrection, that The point of it, I hope, was fairly clear for you. Jesus said, if you deny the resurrection, you're badly mistaken. Jesus teaches, we will be raised. And that is the bigger picture that underwrites a life of love, that enables a life of love, knowing that come what may, even through death, God's got you. And so Jesus points to the model of this poor widow, And says, this is a life of loving God. Leaning into him for security and provision and care. And that's what I want to pray for little Sophie Winter. That she would learn to lean into this great God in that way. That's what I want to pray for my own kids. That's what I want to pray for us as a family of believers here at church, young and old. Whatever our circumstances of life that we would live a life of love enabled by a deep confidence in the love of God poured out on us in Jesus that i pray would be the really gripping kind of energizing center of it all that would shape the way we live that would really kind of saturate the daydreams what if i kept living like that that's the goal i want to aim for as I stand alongside my my hero, who's already kicked it for me. Let's pray. Our loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for the good news of Jesus, that he doesn't set us up for a failure, showing us a benchmark that we can't possibly meet, but rather he grips us with the beauty of his own heart, that he's already shown us what a life of absolute devotion to you looks like what overflowing love for us looks like as he walked towards and then died upon the cross. And Father, we thank you that you invite us into your kingdom, not because we're capable of kicking that goal in our own strength, but because we trust that he's done it for us and we rejoice in standing alongside him, our great hero, and kicking in the same direction. So Father, we pray that whoever we are, young or old, you would help us to see that that vision of loving you with everything we've got and then flowing out of that, loving our neighbours as ourselves, would be that driving reality that energises everything we do and say. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.